Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. I am your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today will be Mike Spivey. Mike is a higher education expert. We will talk about universities, how they've been affected by COVID-19, and the same thing as far as sports programs are concerned. It's a fascinating conversation. I think you will enjoy today's episode. This one is sponsored by the Well Coffee House, a Nashville area coffee house that provides fresh roast coffee along with house-made pastries, breakfast, and lunch offerings. There are four locations to serve you in the Nashville area. Those are Brentwood, Green Hills, downtown, and Bellevue. You can get more info at wellcoffeehouse.org. The Well Coffee House, where coffee changes lives. We thank our co-presenting sponsor, Wellspire, Nashville's Learning and Development Center, which is located in the Gulch. Today's news presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been hurt in any type of accident, give Taylor or Russell a call at 615-846-6200, see what your rights are and if they can help. Two of Vanderbilt's senior baseball players have gone pro, second baseman Harrison Ray has signed a contract with the Toronto Blue Jays. That is the same organization that drafted Austin Martin. And starting catcher Ty Duvall has also signed a free agent contract with the Seattle Mariners. Mike Spivey appears on our guest line, which is presented by Bowling Branch. That was started by Vanderbilt graduates Scott and Missy Tannen. I had no clue how comfortable sheets could be until I got these. They are fair trade certified, meaning they are made under... Joining us now is our guest, Mike Spivey. He is a higher education expert. He graduated from Vanderbilt. He worked at Vanderbilt as well as Washington University in St. Louis and the University of Colorado. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Chris, thank you, and thanks for your sponsors and everyone for having me. You bet. Well, Mike, I'm going to give you the floor to tell folks about what you do for a minute. Sure, I'll, I'll I'll be brief. I'm going to guess that what I do is not of much interest to sports fanatics. Um, my firm runs a higher education consulting uh, business. We help. We started off eight years ago helping primarily law schools, and now more and more we help central universities, universities across a variety of spectra. Um, we have because we work with so many central universities now, particularly when it comes to data modeling, saving them money looking at rankings. If anyone, since this is um, a, a rivals affiliated podcast, if anyone's seen the movie Moneyball, we have a sort of team of, of data centric guys like uh, Jonah Hill and Moneyball. So we look at a lot of university data and then that has spawned my ability to get to know a number of university presidents, which hopefully will be beneficial for this podcast. Well, I know you're going to have lots of insight into the post-COVID environment and how it affects sports. We will get into that. And I think the best way to do it, so many of the mailbag questions pertain to what you and I were going to discuss anyway. I think I would like to just go ahead and get into the mailbag and incorporate those questions into the program, if that's good with you, Mike. I love it. Bring it on. Today's mailbag is sponsored by Vanderbilt fan Josh Minton, an independent insurance agent operating out of Brentwood who can take care of all your insurance needs. Call him today at 615-933-1979. Email him at josh at hqinsurance.com. Follow him on Twitter at joshuamintonhq or facebook.com forward slash jdmintonhq. He is my insurance agent. Give him a try. Tell him you heard about it here. 
Okay, what we're going to do is we will start with the higher ed related questions and then move to sports because there's kind of a natural progression with that anyway. Obviously, football teams are at universities and university decisions affect sports. And so that is going to be the architecture of the mailbag. And with that, let's start with Dorking. Agree or disagree, college-age kids will not be social distancing, so they might as well be in school. Well, was the question so they might as well be in school or if they're not social distancing? Uh, uh, okay, so th- the question is so they might as well be in school even if they're not social distancing. I just want to make sure I have it right. Yeah, although I, mentally I read a nod in there too because I thought that's where he was going. But either way, I, I think – we understand what he's getting at. So let's, let's just start there. I mean, let's face it. When when I was in college and and I'm guessing when you were as well, uh, there was not a lot of social distancing in my life, although the conditions were far different. And I think that Vanderbilt had an issue with this, Mike, is that a lot of kids come back from spring break. COVID is already starting to hit people's radar screen some students had been some places where they picked it up and they went to parties and it got worse. And next thing you know, from what I'm told, you had a couple hundred cases on campus or so of students that had COVID. Uh, the kids knew the risks, I think, to some extent, although maybe not the way they do now. And they did what college kids do anyway, and college kids tend to think they're invincible. Um, so against the backdrop of all that, uh, let's talk about the concept of having school with college kids who it's going to be very tough to keep a rein on their behavior. Sure. So you're absolutely right. The colleges were some of the very first entities to shut down right after spring break because they saw themselves as clustering and for liability issues, which they've been trying to address this summer, 17 university presidents were recently at the white house. They were at the white house and they might not say this publicly, but a large reason why they're at the white house was to ask for liability um, variances related to COVID, which brings up another interesting notion. If if university presidents are asking for liability waivers, then they're aware that liability (laughs) uh, possibilities, the the risk-benefit analysis shows them that there are going to be liability issues, which brings us to our college students. Incredibly highly of web point or service academy or more all the research in this area, the psychological research says risk behavior peaks in any culture. So this isn't even just American specific. In any culture studied, risk behavior peaks between ages of 20 and 24. The other interesting um, study of note or studies of note is your the human reward system between the ages of 20 and 25 gets more um, activation when you're with your peers than when you're alone. In post mid twenties, there is no activation of a reward system from impressing your peers. So, you know, the research would say that risky behavior is almost pervasive across colleges. College students are not gonna socially distance. In other words, like the last demographic of a business you would open is one that depends on kids that are college age. Well, I, I would add the caveat if I wasn't if, if I wasn't running the business, but I was a public health expert or, or whatever, probably so. I mean, what are dorms but dirty cruise ships? 
and what are what's the riskiest demographic, age 20 to 24. But, you know, there are significant financial reasons that I, that I um, the pressures financially I, that I don't have to face, college presidents, college boards, are, you know, are well aware of. And I'm happy to talk about those. Well, and that's the thing is it's a, it's a you lose either way situation. Either you be really cautious for all the reasons we've gone through or you start bankrupting schools in the higher ed system, which – is not good either. So it's just a, a way of how do we find the best option in the midst of all that. And there's other demographics too, right? Like college kids get it. It can be fatal or very damaging at times. But for the most part, and I'm not an expert on this, you probably know more about it than I do. It's affecting senior citizens or people with pre-existing health conditions, maybe cancer, things like that. So with that, I want to talk a little bit about the global view on COVID. I know you've researched this, so let's just hit that and where we tie up some of those loose ends. Yeah, so COVID as it relates to higher education is interesting because around 1950 to 1970, the United States higher education system became the hegemonic dominant higher ed system in the world, and we retain that today. The U.S. has lost a lot of their dominance in, in multiple sectors, but in higher ed, we are vastly, by far, the, the power player. I'll give you data. The higher education revenue in the United States is about $671 billion a year. That's 3.4% of our mean GDP. The next most is $11 billion a year, UK, which is 0.4% of their GDP. So higher education matters in the United States. It doesn't just matter to academia. It matters to the to the government. It matters to our GDP. It matters to the economic sector. So when people who are decision makers in this arena are discussing COVID, it's it's a, it's risk reward, just like you mentioned. It's, it's cost benefit analysis. How how um, what is the fatality? What is the contagiousness? But also, what are the economic consequences if we shut down universities? To be clear, university revenue streams are much larger than athletic revenue streams. So colleges generated about a billion dollars in revenue last year from athletics. But conversely, uh, Overall, again, I think the number I just quoted was $671 billion. So in theory, one one out of every $671 billion is generated by athletics, but it's not even close to that. The typical college, the typical college, and for SEC schools, this is getting much more, spends $92,000 per athlete and $14,000 per non-athlete, driven primarily by these huge coaching salaries that are, you know, 10 to 20 times larger than chancellor salaries, much greater than any other staff member. So, you know, there are lots of pressures on universities, but I would say that the reason why I talked to three athletic directors in the last couple of days is because no college president I've been talking to in the last month has brought up athletics because they're generally a small subsector of, of the whole pot. Yeah. And I would think that for Vanderbilt, that's even more the case. And I know some of the schools you've talked to, we won't get into those for privacy reasons, but um, I'm still reeling from something you said a minute ago. So the U.S. market for higher ed is $671 billion, and the number two country in the world is $11 billion. So basically, we're 60-something times greater 
than the number two market for higher ed. I mean, look, I don't know that I'd ever thought about in those terms. When you think of world-class universities, they're almost all in the U.S., but that's staggering, Mike. Yeah, we have market dominance in the early, in the you know, from 1900 to, or from, you know, 1901 to 1949, Cambridge and Oxford and other national or other global universities were importing Americans. Now international students flock to the U.S. That's another way of thinking about it. Around 1950, we gained global dominance of the higher education market, and we have it today. And, you know, this country does not want to lose that. Let's see. Our next question comes from Ann Arbor door. He says, if Mike were sending a child to college in the fall, what would be a red flag? And conversely, what approaches by schools might give you some comfort? Yeah. So that, I love that question. Um, in colleges, look, they're looking at the finances for sure, but they have a lot of major universities, Vanderbilt included, have world experts uh, you know, in, in their medical community. I talked to one who studied, uh, it, it's a, in the UT system in Texas, who has studied the coronavirus for her entire career. That was not a very glamorous, sexy field to be in because generally we associate the coronavirus with the common cold, which has been around for 200 years. And no one's found a cure for the common cold and no one cares. So this person is now blown up with attention. So you know, colleges are reaching out to medical experts too, and they have plans. They obviously have plans. Would I send my child to a to a college? Highly likely. The red flag to me, incidentally, would be the, the following two things. Number one, is anyone in my family unit over 65 or immunocompromised? Do they have a comorbidity? Do they have diabetes? You mentioned cancer. Do they have some sort of comorbidity? And for probably for the vast number of college students aged 19 to 24, which, by the way, isn't the entire age group. We had a, when I was at Vanderbilt Law School, we admitted a 12-year-old, a 12-year-old to law school, side note. But the vast majority are age 19 to 24. So, you know, their parents are probably not going to be over 65. Probably most of them don't have grandparents living there. Just the data alone would tell us most of them probably, but not definitely, don't have comorbidities in their house at home. So I would say, okay, if the answer is no, then I would 100% be comfortable sending my child to college because the the you know as you mentioned, unlike the 1918 Spanish flu, where the people with the strongest immune systems were the ones who got hit the hardest, with COVID is the opposite. The second red flag I would look look for is what is the university's, or in the case of a student athlete, what is the athletic department's protocol? Because the NCAA hasn't chimed in here yet. What is the only thing the NCAA has has said? Is, incidentally, is they, they've commented on like the mask issue and ever and other things, but they haven't given colleges a protocol for the, for a student who tests positive, a student who demonstrates symptoms. So I would want to know, not probably as much for my kid's sake, although I'm sure I would be very nervous. But also, I want to make sure that student is that my child or that student is isolated for 14 days. So what is and this is a big thing that colleges are struggling with. How do we isolate? Colleges are going to be clusters, undoubtedly. Not every college, but many colleges will become clusters. What is their plan for taking Ohio State University system has 50,000 students? What if a thousand develop symptoms of COVID? What if 5,000? Can they put them all in 
in isolated dorms, quarantine dorms, hotel rooms, hospitals. So I would, I would want to know about that. Well, I'm looking at this from a 30,000 foot view. And again, I keep going back to the people that this harms the most are people with conditions or, or advancing in age. And so I look at this one is the, the contagion and the spread, right? And we've already talked about that, about how difficult it is uh, keeping college kids mm. distance. But then I think the obvious next concern is keeping those kids from passing this along to the people at risk. I'm thinking if I'm running a college, one of the first things I do is identify my at-risk staff and professors and start kind of roping off, okay, what I do I do with these people? Is that how colleges have thought through this? Yeah, they have, and, and all the way to the extreme of sharing faculty with other colleges. So if you start off at Vanderbilt, you might start off the semester with a Vanderbilt professor and end with a Belmont professor. Now, I'm using specific schools that I haven't heard from on this, but I have heard from other schools about their plans, and that's one of them. So colleges have thought through this, but there's also, I mean, look, I would love to see a lawsuit, the, the lawsuit where a college denies a student who is obese from attending a class because obesity is a comorbidity. Because to the extent that colleges can control um, students, faculty, and staff, there's a lot of things they can't control. They can't tell someone who's, who you know, has a comorbidity in certain areas that they can't attend class. So they cannot, the uncertainty of this virus, the policies in place to protect student rights are preventing colleges from, you know, being, having complete control of who's in the classroom and who's not. I hadn't even thought about that. That that's a Pandora's box because you have a huge disconnect right there between what schools are allowed to do by the law and the risks they're exposed to if they can't work around those things. Yeah. It's something that, so when I talk to college, what's really fascinating is when I talk to college president, presidents, they bring up liability a bunch. They don't bring up athletics yet, <laughs> maybe later. But I mean, to be fair, my firm, you know, athletic departments don't reach out to my firm. We know nothing about, you know, how an athletic department should be run. I should be calling Tim Corbin. Tim Corbin, Tim Corbin would never call me. <laughs> he would never know my name. But so, you know, we don't, they don't, talk, maybe they don't talk about athletics because we don't specialize in that area, but they are certainly covering all the different ways to prevent people at risk from, from catching or from, you know, from spreading the virus, from having the virus spread to them. But they just, they already re recognize that there's certain things they can't control. And people who have comorbidities on college campuses are highly likely, likely going to contract COVID. Okay. Go back to the thing that you said about sharing professors and explain that for a moment. So it would either be – so right now, 8% of colleges have announced that they're going to be online. 92% are going to have some form of model that's not online. And there's many, many – there's too many models to go into for this target audience. I think it would, people would you know, tune out the, the podcast. But if the school is online or if a class is online, it's really easy, right? You can have a, a faculty if, – if you're Princeton, you can have a Brown faculty member teach a class over Zoom. If the if the Princeton professor you know gets COVID and is out for three weeks, if you're charging full tuition because you are promising an on-campus experiential education, and there is 
tons of research that these Zoom calls that colleges have been doing are not effective, and in-person um, uh, pedagogy is much more effective. There's a lot of feelings amongst college presidents that if they go online, they're going to have to discount tuition. And this is, you know, one half of the equation here is we are facing a financial crisis, and we're about to get hit by another financial crisis in 2026, because during the Great Recession, a third, there were a third less babies born. So in 2026, these people are going to be applying to college, and enrollment will decrease at many colleges by a third. So they already knew that they had Mike Tyson on their schedule for 2026, and someone just plopped them in the ring with Muhammad Ali. So they're fighting two financial battles at once. So you know they don't want to discount tuition, but they so they have they feel great pressure to be on campus. So one of the theories going around, or one of the plans going around, is if one of our faculty members becomes sick and we don't have the faculty resources to fill that class, maybe there's someone at a local college who can teach it for two or three weeks, and we will compensate them. Yeah, I'm seeing potential nightmare. Let's say that you've got a professor on your campus who's very renowned and respected, and students sign up for that class just because that professor, let's say you get two, three weeks into the semester, he comes down with COVID, you've got to switch out professors and go online. I'm guessing the students are probably going to want a partial refund and the schools are probably not going to want to issue one because A, everybody likes making as much money as they can, and B, you already have some hardships with what happened over the spring that carry over to the fall in terms of how budgets are affected. Yeah, they do not want to have to uh, discount the Roman board and the tuition. Let me give you an example. I can't name the school, but one of the schools I work with, their prorated or their discounted room and board alone for sending students home a month early cost them $33 million. In theory, Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University generates $107 million a year per room and board. Now, that's not actually entirely accurate because some people have scholarships, but if Vanderbilt makes $44 million from football, I think, you, you, you know more than me, but I think the SEC average is $44 million per school. If it's, if it's not straight across schools, then Vanderbilt makes less than $44 million because they, they wouldn't be at the high end, right? Um, so, you know, and they're making – these are all in theory because there's discounting on both ends, but these are good ratio to know. They're making $107 million on room and board alone. If, if anyone on this podcast remembers when they were a Vanderbilt student, do you remember how hard it was to get off-campus living? That's not because Vanderbilt lacked the resources. They wanted to charge you to stay on campus because it's a revenue stream. So they want to keep, they don't want, they do not want a tuition discount. They do not want to give refunds. Most of the colleges we work with and talk to have said, if students get sick, we are going to find them quarantine dorms. We're not going to send them scattering to the winds like we did last time. Yeah, I went to Lipscomb. It was the same way. You could live off campus as a senior, but I have a feeling the motivation was the same. Yeah, I, I, I don't work with Lipscomb. I think your instincts are probably pretty spot on. I want to hit on one other thing. You've seen some schools that have closed down in the midst of this. There were schools that were already shaky to begin with financially. You've seen some schools that have shut down certain athletic teams. I have a feeling this is just going to be the weeding out process 
where a lot of the schools have been teetering on the brink. And frankly, I think there's probably too many colleges anyway. There's, I think, in the neighborhood of 4,000. You probably know the number. But what is this yeah, going five, to do to the landscape in the next – Yeah, okay. What's, what's this going to do to that landscape, say, over the next 10 years? Yeah, I think you're right about uh, – I mean, you know, I talked to a, 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 someone who's an expert in the in, industry. Uh, he's at Princeton, and he called it a market correction. That, to me, sounds a little bit harsh when you're talking about people's jobs and livelihoods. But there are a lot of colleges in the U.S., 5,600, and we're going to lose a good number. Almost no way around it. The, they were already, again, facing, facing down a financial storm. Let me give you an interesting data point. For this podcast, I, uh, there's 22 private colleges in Kentucky, but we could only identify 19. 15 of the 19 are in the red. They have lot, been losing money, not making money. So, that, again, this is a very self-selected pool and a small sample, but you could see a scenario where 15 of, ni- of the 19 colleges we just arbitrarily chose to identify in one state, again, it's a, it's, it's a, a self-selected population by us, could go under. Now, will 15 out of every 19 colleges go under? No. Are we going to lose 600? Probably 1,000, possibly. By 2027, by 2028, you might see us be at 2,000 colleges, 3,000 colleges. We might half the number of colleges we have. When you say 15 of 19 losing money, does that cover like a time period of certain years or was that – I'm presuming that's not just last year because, I mean, in that case, that would put a lot of – colleges and the money losing but what's your what's your time frame on that it's actually at this static moment and and some of that is from the endowment hits they took uh, um from the market plunge uh, several months ago so at this static moment for our research 15 of 19 are are in the red not making money my guess is that's going to continue because a lot of colleges have been you know right at a lot of colleges have been right at that sort of threshold they're not making money, but they're not losing money. We've lost some colleges in the last few years. We're going to lose a large number, 600,000 in the next couple of years, I would predict. I, I, obviously, you know, this is just speculation. I have Prediction is difficult, especially when it involves the future. That sounds like a Yogi Bear, Bear quote. You tell me, Chris. Prediction is difficult, especially when it involves the future. So who knows? But there's a lot of colleges that have been teetering right at the middle, on the midline. And they're going to dip below that Mendoza point over the next couple of years. I think we're going to attribute that to Yogi Bear, whether he said it or not. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let me give you another data point I failed to mention. I mean, the international students are not going to be able to show up here because they can't get sponsored visas from the university, but they can't get visas at all. I know that number for law schools. I don't know it for undergrad universities, but you know, for law schools, there's one school that's 63% international. They could lose 63% of the revenue if they're on campus and international students can't show up and refuse to take backup online courses. There are certainly a number of universities and colleges, including large major, you know, Division I powerhouses that have lots of international students in their student body. And they are going to be suffering. Those schools are, might be more incentivized to have football because football not only helps with you know, that $1 billion revenue, but it also helps with enrollment management, getting applicants' eyes on your campus. So you know, th- these are some of the you – know, football is the most talked about thing because not only does it generate positive revenue, 
but it also helps the so-called Flutie effect. It also helps. I mean, look, Duke University is well aware that their rise in the rankings and their rise in selectivity correlated with the rise of their basketball prominence. Well, I want to go away from sports a minute. I'm just thinking, okay, and that's probably a bit of an outlier where one law school has 63% of its students internationally. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but here's what I'm thinking, okay? What do you do if you're that school or a school like that? Do you all of a sudden dip into your wait list and start sending out a bunch of letters saying, hey, there's an opportunity here for you now, which, of course, does all sorts of things to your your demographics when it comes to to academic averages and the strength of your class and everything. So I'm, I'm guessing you have some schools that are having a portion of its of their qualified kids that now can't or don't want to come because of this. So what does that do in terms of, of wait lists and selectivity? You know, if you're a Harvard yeah. or somebody like that, you just say, well, no, we've got the kids we want, um, you know, and, and it's, it's kept our average SATs and everything at a certain point. Do we start dipping into a lower pool to fill out the enrollment of the numbers we thought we were going to have at the risk of damaging those numbers? I mean, I would imagine that's different across a bunch of landscapes, but that's a fascinating problem that I'm sure some schools have to deal with. Yeah, I mean, almost all undergrad schools are dealing in law schools, but that's not relevant to this podcast are dealing with that issue and they don't know yet. Right. So they don't, they have seat deposit deadlines, but they don't know whether those deposits are going to turn into matriculants. They really don't. There was speculation a few months ago that they could be 20% under enrolled. The most recent data, as far as seat deposits would indicate that public universities, I saw this two days ago, public universities appear to be 1% under enrolled. Now we don't know how far that means they've already dipped into their wait list. For most schools, when you go deeply into your wait list, the, the, the cost-benefit there analysis there is, are we going to take a hit in U.S. News and World Report rankings, or are we going to spend you know, the same number of FTE, full-time equivalents, money, students, human bodies, to schools? And ever since this great U.S. News World Report rankings arms race, the majority of the elite universities and colleges have, have tilted towards we would rather have a smaller class and higher U.S. news rankings. You know, Vanderbilt has 6,000, I don't know, 700 or something like that, 6,661 undergraduate students. They would love to have 10,000 or 12,000 because they would make a lot more money. The reason why they don't and, you know, look, nothing against Vanderbilt because I used to work there and, and, and this is, you know, what all schools say. So this is not me picking on Vanderbilt. This is all schools. They would love to say we only have 6,651 students because we want a small, intimate experiential experience where, you know, you're getting taught by actual faculty and not TAs. But probably a lot of that number derives from how, how large can our entering class size be before it hits our ACT, SAT, GPA metrics, selectivity metrics. And I think what we're going to see is maybe not this year, but next year you're going to see a lot of this selectivity. I mean, it's so hard. There's no possible way I could get admitted to Vanderbilt now when I was in 1990. No possible way. It is so selective. 5%, 4%. You know, the, the, it's just ridiculous. And I think even at the elite schools, over the next few years, we're going to see a little bit of 
and you're going to have to get into it. And by the very definition, from decision maker and emissions, the weightless candidates are not as strong as their initial admits. I hate to say it like that because emissions doesn't get to know these people. It's not a reflection of the people. It's a reflection of their admissions file, which includes their test scores. And then in 2026, look, if you're a parent listening to this podcast and your kid's applying to college in 2026 or beyond, freaking you hit the lottery. Hallelujah. Because what is ridiculously selective now is going to become a lot less selective in the near future, including this coming year. But then very much so in 2026 and beyond. I am betting there's going to be a lot of sideways glancing between those elite institutions. In other words, Harvard saying, well, we might like to admit a couple hundred more students to compensate for the ones that we're going to lose due to this. But back to you said, it's the the U.S. News and World Report's arms race and, and watering down your quality of student body there. But if Yale's doing it, uh, then everybody's sort of on the same platform. So I bet there's going to be a lot of copycatting between those elite schools. Well, that brings up something fascinating. So, you know, your forum has a, a high percentage, I, I have never figured out why, a high percentage of lawyers who participate in your forum, I believe. So For sure. 20, <laughs> okay, so on, uh, have you figured out why? Because I'm, I'm curious. I'm not a lawyer. So I, here's my, my quick theory. I think that... Um, People like to argue on message boards, and nobody likes to argue more than lawyers. Okay, so maybe, maybe not. I won't publicly make a theory on that. Um, I will. I, I will say the, the following, which is so fascinating to me: on August twenty eighth, our my firm, because we had spoken to a number of college presidents, and we've looked at a lot of data, predicted that the vast majority. I think we said almost all colleges are going to be on are on campus real time. And that 8% number, by the way, I think as the summer progresses, is going to go down. So it's going to be 5% online, 4% online. About four days later, at the beginning of May, a, a large number of colleges announced that they were going to be sure enough on campus. Who do I get a call from? The chief antitrust lawyer at a big law firm, a top 10 law firm, saying, hey, we're curious how you predicted that. And if there are listservs or Zoom chats amongst the college presidents, because the DOJ has given uh, pharmaceutical companies the year past, they are no longer scrutinized pharmaceutical companies. And they are now much more tuned into higher ed. Our higher, and so this person said, are higher ed uh, institutions saying to each other, if you're open, we're gonna be open? Because that would be a possible antitrust violation. And if so, we would love to know their general counsel's contact number because we would love to work with them. <laughs> So, you know, incidentally, Chris, the answer to the, to the question was no, no, they're not colluding. They're very smart people. Deep deposit deadline just came up. So they wanted to make an announcement about being on campus before seat deposit deadlines so people would actually pay their deposit deadlines and be incentivized to show up on campus. Man, I'm just sitting here listening to you speak, and I'm just wondering, like, did, did you ever spend any time or people in your industry, and I guess you do what's in front of you, right? Most of us do. But was was there ever any thought six months, a year ago, if to, okay, what if something like this ever happened, and what would higher ed look like this? Or is everybody just dealing with this in real time? Um, well, so my mentor, who was my dean at Vanderbilt and Wash U, is a lawyer who clerked for Sandra Day O'Con- Justice Day- Sandra Day O'Connor, who is 
I've learned a lot from it. And one of the things is the worst case scenario, everything. So my guess is colleges are constantly, I mean, you know, you probably the same way I am. As I get older, I get more paranoid about running a business. Um, so they're probably a good deal of decision makers at the top who are constantly saying, what is the worst case scenario? There may have even been a few that said, um, you know, Bill Gates and others have predicted that it's inevitable that we're going to have a global pandemic. So, you know, at the very minimum, we should have a contingency plan. But as you alluded to, for the vast majority, this just sort of hit them in the face. Because as much as you would like to plan for, you know, all variables, are you really going to pay attention to a, what if a meteor hits the gate next to, to us? No, because you're, there's too many problems you're putting out, too many fires you're putting out every day. So this caught a lot of colleges off guard. There aren't any college presidents I know of that were, that were around in 1918. Exactly. Let's see. Theodore says nearly every university has announced it will have on-campus classes in the fall, but there will be no on-campus classes after Thanksgiving break. The rationale is that there is projected to be a resurgence of COVID by then, so mitigating travel back and forth from campus keeps both students and their families safer. However, it appears there's a resurgence now. Is there a breaking point or infection rates or for infection rates that would cause universities either to reconsider on-campus classes in the fall or suspend on-campus classes even earlier than Thanksgiving break? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good, you know, mindful, specific question. So I'll, I'll try to break that down. Um, to begin with, I don't, I mean, obviously, I guess if this, if the, if this thing were to mutate, it's an RNA-based virus and it tends to mutate more than non-RNA-based viruses. Uh, but as someone, um, as a doctor told me, I, I won't name anyone, um, when viruses mutate, they tend to more likely mutate in the, in the good direction because the fatal one is they mutate in the fatal direction that kills the host and it's not spread. Point being, if this thing mutated in the wrong direction, towards fatality, then maybe, yes, colleges would, would just say we're not going to open up campus. But my um, feeling, my instincts on this, which are just speculation, are that colleges are highly likely not going to be the authorities that say we're not going to open up. I think it's going to be much more likely public health officials. That could, Chris, be state-dependent. De- state so, the, you know, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, might easily say, no, University of Florida system, you are not closing down, where the governor of Vermont, I, don't, I have no idea who the governor, governor of Vermont is, might say, yeah, do whatever you want, send them home if you think. So for public institutions, that might be more of a, a governor call, state-level call. For private institutions, that's up to the university. The university, again, is not going to, I don't think, unless this thing becomes more fatal or highly more contagious. It is contagious, very contagious, but I don't think universities are going to make that decision. Um, the, the, the question also posited that we're, you know, I think it pos- posited that we're in a second wave or that, um, you know, things are on the uprise. The data I've seen, and I've talked to someone at the CDC and someone who studied the coronavirus for their entire career, and, the, and, the, and, I, and I saw a, a, a one of the highest regarded models. The data I've seen is that the curve has flattened, but it's flattened too high. So they wanted the R not, you know, which everyone now knows that term, um, the level of contagiousness. They wanted it under one, and for a while it got down to 0.9. 
but now it's slightly above one. So maybe it actually made the questions accurate. It's, it's still slightly elevating. But what I have seen is that most of the forecasts are that all this thing, everything that we're doing now, because during the summer it's less humid, the particles stay in the air less long. And over time, even adults, not just people 20 to 24, are going to get more and more lax and things are going to open up more and more. And I'm not saying that's bad or good or bad. I don't think we, I don't, I'm not one that thinks that we should be afraid of our own shadows forever. We can't. We need to learn to live with this virus and act responsibly. But the data would suggest that when we hit fall and things cool down and it gets mm. uh, more humid, that we're going to have a second wave. And that's right about when kids are showing up for college. And what are colleges? They are the prime examples of the most likely clusters. So I'm not, I'm not, I think colleges are going to open. I am fascinated with what's going to happen when a college just becomes a bloom of, of infections of COVID. I don't know. I do not know the answer to that. The person at the CDC told me they do not know the answer to that. Well, and there's one other weird dynamic we discussed before the podcast. One school, which we will not name, that you know of is going to have students in dorms, but do all its classes online. Now, I'm guessing, again, that's got a lot to do with revenue, but good luck explaining that one in terms of health reasons, right? Yeah, the, yeah. their current plan, which, you know, it's just like... I do think very highly of colleges and universities has been my entire adult career, and I think highly of the decision makers, but no one really knows what to do. And we spoke with one university and who at this static moment plans to bring students back to dorms but have classes except for lab classes online. So, you know, they may adapt. They may adapt over the summer. There are, Chris, there are so many different hybrid models, different forms of social distancing, contact tracing and reverse contact tracing. How are they going to do that? How are they, they going to take a, how is Ohio State going to take a student who presents or is tested? And by the way, each test costs $150 now. So can you test every student every day? Of course not, not even close. Can you test every football player every day? Highly likely not, not every day. You can take their temperatures. But, um, you know, where was I going with this, Chris? <laughs> uh, the, um, the, the, the odds of being able to even contact trace and reverse contact trace a student that's on a college campus of 50,000 people, I just don't see how they have the resources. Sure, if you're a tiny college with 600 people, and of the three athletic departments I talked to, one was very small. The other two were large. If you're a tiny college, probably you can do that. But I think for the vast majority of colleges, maybe even including Vanderbilt, you're not going to be able to quarantine and isolate or find out who everyone's been in contact with. A student has to give you a waiver to allow you to use their phone for a Google app that does contact tracing, an Apple app that does contact tracing. Do you think the majority of students are going to permit their colleges to follow them around? I, my guess is no. Yeah, well, I would hope not, but I'm just – I know this isn't funny, but I'm just picturing this this conversation. Well, Johnny, you have COVID nineteen. Tell us where you were last night. Well, I was at this club, <laughs> and then after that, I was at this bar, and then I was at that bar, then I was at these apartments, and and off to the races we go. Yeah, and if Johnny's under twenty one, he's certainly not going to say that. Exactly, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, this thing is just so humbling. I, I think that I've tended just to laugh at people that think they know what's coming next because it's not a 
very realistic point of view. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the the greatest again. So my firm does not specialize in athletics, so we had to do research. I had to do research, and we had to reach out to athletic directors. And the greatest takeaway for us is that there is so much uncertainty that colleges, as as mindful and thoughtful as they are, as much as they are planning right now for this, they don't really know what they're going what they're going to do in the fall. They don't know what's going to happen if there's an outbreak. There's a quote I have. It's very, um, this is a wonderful quote that you probably wouldn't find in a Google search, but it's from one of the former CEOs a long time ago of of the company GE, General Electric. It goes, no amount of sophistication is going to allay the fact that all of your knowledge is about the past and all of your decisions are about the future. So we have no data on COVID. It's novel. Uh, Everything I've seen is utter speculation. That's that's so comforting, Mike. <laughs> well, I don't want I don't want your eighty percent lawyers that you know <laughs> say I said anything definitive. It's all speculation. Yeah, I, I know how that goes from running a message board. So, um, let's see. Next one from Big Horn Sheep. As we get more into sports, he says, "I'll use football as an example. If a player or coach or even parent of a player of a team tests positive for COVID during the season." What is the action plan if that happens? And if it is to quarantine everyone for two weeks that has had contact with that person, how can we see a football season? I'm assuming, or am I assuming too much that this won't be the plan? If a player slash coach slash parent tests positive, otherwise I don't see how a season could happen. It's too much of a likelihood. Teams will need to quarantine for two weeks so you can't complete schedules. Yeah, a fascinating element to that question is when I ask about soccer, what happens if six soccer players test positive for COVID? The answer is, oh, we would shut down the soccer program. When I ask for for foot about football, I get a bunch of no comments. <laughs> I wonder right? why. So it, <laughs> right. So it might be sport specific. Even I do not see early on a scenario where, if in your example, Johnny, the football star. Now I'm picturing Johnny Manziel, and I'm getting sick to my stomach. But if Johnny, the football star, gets uh, tested, test positive for COVID, I don't see a scenario where the team says, all right, everyone that person has been in contact with on our team has to be quarantined or isolated for 14 days. Obviously, the plan is for Johnny to be quarantined for 14 days. If, the, if Johnny tests positive, that's a done deal. Johnny is going into 14-day quarantine, I would all begin. Well, again, I don't want to say anything definitive. Right now, I would say that's incredibly likely. But I think it's also very likely that right now at this point, they're just going to test, they're just going to test the people you've been in contact with or, or let everyone else practice. Because of that, football teams that have depth probably are going to be favored this year if they finish the season versus football teams without depth. Because you're, you know, if, the, if someone's sick with COVID, no one's going to let them – the NCAA is not going to let them play, obviously. But hotels aren't even going to let them in, into the hotel, and the planes aren't going to let them on the plane. So they can't, they can't travel. What happens if you show up to a hotel, and the hotel tests are takes the temperature, and 10 of your student-athletes, your football players, have an elevated t- temperature? That hotel has the right to deny them access. You find some – you know, sketchy hotel that will keep them overnight for an hourly, hourly, hourly rate 
and then hopefully their temperature is down the next day. You know, these are the problems that athletic directors are being faced with. And again, they don't know the answer to that. But it's a wonderful question because there, I think there's a lot of scenarios, a parade of miseries, where that get us to how are how is football, how is wrestling, how are the you know I think the typical fan, maybe not any sports or the animal fan, but but I think the typical college football fan does not realize in the past how often how much contact with players these programs have. It is more than a job in many cases. They are in meetings so, so often. They are with the players in the weight room on voluntary workouts. Now, that's going to change, and you, and you know more about this than, than I do, Chris, but my understanding is that August 7th is going to be the first real start, start date of practices. July 13th, the first day they can use the weight rooms as teams, which incidentally, in 1990, when I was a college freshman, August was the report, the reporting day for college football. So that's not like for someone like Nick Saban, that's not too abnormal. I don't think college, I don't think college football coaches, as long as the playing field is equal, I don't think that most of them think that they need July, all of July and August to practice. They just want it to be equal and systemic. And what they want is they want protocols where the players are going to be treated like family units. Small numbers of players are going to be with small numbers of other players in family unit type groups as much as possible. So you're going to see rotated meetings and you're going to see uh, empty bus seats and empty airplane seats because the, the, the single word that came up the most time and time again when I talked to athletic directors was density. I heard the word density time and time again. So they, what college football coaches, what college sports programs want to do is they want to control density as much as possible before the season starts. In hope, in, in hope, maybe vain hope, I don't know, in hope that they, that they can therefore have a full season. Well, I want to get into some things that have just popped into my head over the last day that had not occurred to me. I'm going to lead with this question and then get into a couple more. Ann Arbor says, how does Mike see COVID-19 impacting medical privacy, especially as we begin to use contact tracing in sports and teams possibly being required to notify other teams of infections. That got me to thinking about injury reports and HIPAA and all kinds of stuff. Like, on one hand, I think schools sometimes hide behind HIPAA not to release injury reports for reasons that have nothing to do with that. I mean, you've seen this all over the place. Some coach will come out and say, Johnny's dealing with a hamstring injury or, you know, Johnny's going to be fine this week, and we expect him to play, knowing that Johnny's not going to play the rest of the year. You already have that dynamic, and now you throw COVID on top of it, and I'm just wondering how that goes. Yeah, part of that question I can't answer because um, outside of one law school class and higher education uh, law, I have no experience in like HIPAA. I mean, FERPA is another big one. Technically, when I was an assistant dean at two law schools, if a parent called and said, can you tell me how my son, how, if a parent technically under the strictest definition of FERPA, if a parent called and said, how is my son doing? I couldn't answer the question. I literally legally could not answer the question. I would have to say, ask your son. So to that extent, I think that that's right. There, you know, 
I, I don't know the law here, so I, I, I'm not even going to speculate. But I think it's a very fair question because how can you ask a student or tell a student, you know, there's no way you can tap on your phone so we can contact you. I see two scenarios potentially. I mean, there's more than this, but these are the two that come to mind. Let's say that it is the middle of the season. Your team is one and five. You're a 35 point underdog going to Tuscaloosa the next week. You get a couple of key players with COVID, um, maybe some backups. Do you? I wonder how much what's on the horizon affects. You know, whether you call up the opposing AD and say, hey, we can't make it this week <laughs> to play the game. Right. Or, I mean, or, con- or conversely, yeah, yeah th- think about it this way. On the other hand, let's say that you are 5-0 and in your division in the SEC and you got a game coming up at another school at Georgia somewhere and you're a three-point underdog. You got a two-game lead in the loss column. Uh, you know, do, do you, in a bye week the next week, do you suddenly become, quote-unquote, too sick or, or, quote, too big of a risk to, to come at this game? And, you know, how, how does this, the league start handling it when teams opt out of games for what seem like valid reasons to maybe sit on the lead or something like that? I mean, who knows how much that could come into reality, but uh, I, I've thought about it. Yeah, and if you thought, I mean, in some sense, it's a hilarious question, right? Throughout my entire career, I've heard about gaming the rankings, and this is sort of like gaming schedules with COVID. In some sense, it's hilarious. In some sense, it's actually sad, because if you thought of it, I guarantee you, who was it? Is it Jim Mora, who was when he was at the Atlanta Falcons? He didn't even let his players have, like, butter and trays. He had them replace all the butter so they were in individual pa- packages because he was so afraid that if one butter tray had a virus or a bacteria in it, then 12 of his players would get sick. And that, you know, so football coaches, like, you know, if you thought of it, football coaches are, are, have thought about this already, I would all but guarantee. And if football coaches have thought of it, probably the NCAA has said, well, what if this coach says we can't play because of COVID? I don't know, man. This is like fascinating and so outside my, you know, the lane that, I, that my firm drives in. I think your guess is better than mine, Chris. So I'm curious what you think. I guess if I had to speculate, it would be that the NCAA has thought through this and they're going to say, if you have a certain percentage of your depth chart that's able to play, you're going to have to play. You can't call and say, hey, we're, hey, we're not going to play Alabama this week. Sorry. Yeah, and that's I when know. schools can start <laughs> cutting or adding walk-ons to please. If it's a percentage of current roster, right, right, uh, right. I, I just so, think this is. Oh, let me let me give you another what if, okay? Let let's say it's the. Well, I doubt this would happen, but it's the end of the season, and let's say the SEC's got a couple teams in the the B, you know, in the top four, and a couple of them are playing each other, and a couple teams are a little sick, you know. Hey, you've got some guys infected. I've got some guys infected. We're both undefeated, um, and they don't play the game. And all of a sudden, you know, a, a team in the Pac-12 or the Big 12 is is screaming where they're playing all the games. I mean, it just it could go so many places. Yeah, I mean that big law antitrust chief officer might call those schools and say, "Hey, did you wink, wink with that other coach that you won't play?" I, I, I don't know the law here. 
about collusion in this area. You know, I don't know if the coach even has the authority to cancel the game or if it's the athletic director, probably the athletic director. There are so many unknowns. We, we could take it. You know, I heard Bobby Johnson once talk about how, like, when he was a young coach, they would meet at airports for film and they would watch film by 11 p.m. and go to bed. But with all the, you know, EXO and all the sophisticated software, he was talking about how you could be, it could be like three in the morning and you're, you know, you're falling asleep, like you're, you have the TV remote control and you're just clicking on, okay, it's third and one and there's 14% precipitation and the, it's a half moon and they're third string free safeties and what are their tendencies? And you and I could do this all day <laughs> because there's so many fascinating scenarios that, you know, come to play that I haven't even thought about. You know, I spend most of my time thinking about law schools and, and undergrad schools and higher education. But if I dedicated a day to thinking about all the, again, the parade of maladies that these athletic departments are facing, it could just go on forever. It could literally go on forever. I use this analogy a lot. When my daughter was about four, we're getting in the car and I look up um, and she's licking the side of the car. And I say to her, Isabella, quit licking the car. And then as soon as I say that, I think, you know, that's a sentence I never contemplated uttering in my life. And I think this is sort of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine recently, his, his daughter wanted a pony and the dad said no. So she poured milk over her head. Same analogy. <laughs> you know, things we never thought we would be talking about, we are talking about now. Well, let's get into and, two more questions. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to cut you off there, Mike. No, no, I was just going to say, and you know, again, it's, it, there, there are many things that your listeners probably have thought about that would never cross my mind. Okay, let's see. I, I know that you have talked to some ADs. What have those conversations been like? Yeah, again, what, for them, it's about um, two things, population density and mitigation. So they want to have social distancing and mitigation factors into effect. They want the season to start and end. And particularly, you know, again, football is a, is a, is a huge driver here. They want football season to start and end. Um, the vast majority of that billion dollars of revenue comes from football. I mean, even if you add it in baseball and basketball, it's not even close. So football coaches want there to be a football season. So, they, so I talked to someone who I would – I mean, to this person's credit, they told me that, you know, they were not wearing a mask to the office. They were not wearing a mask to the grocery store. But this athletic director told me that it was their responsibility not to, you know, let their belief system, which is totally fair, impact their players, which was this person's professional responsibility. So they looked at a bunch of research and now they are requiring all their student athletes, all their staff, all their trainers to wear masks anytime they are performing their duties. So that person, you know, basically has to, that person basically went 180 because they said that they, when they looked at the macro level data, anyone can find a, a doctor that says, don't wear a mask. I've, I've seen that a number of times. So beyond masks, you know, masks, which, you know, again, you know, everyone has their opinion and I'm not here to espouse mine at all. Uh, I, that's going to be something they're going to use for for universities, for uh, athletic departments. Uh, there's going to be all kinds of weight room protocols, so it's going to be rotated. I mean, one person I talked to mentioned only four people or eight people in the weight room at a time. Think about how – no, I didn't talk to University of Alabama or Texas or 
you know, name your huge school, but think about how massive those weight rooms are. They're going to be, you know, they want to control density. Anything that has to do with density. I heard the room, I heard the words repeated several times. Team travel is problematic. Team travel is a nightmare. So they're going to have people not sitting next to each other on buses, not sitting next to each other on planes. There will be one student athlete per hotel room for schools that can afford it. Um, you know, are they going to test every college athlete every day? Not yet, because the tests are too expensive. Are they going to take their temperature for every practice? A hundred percent. What happens if a student has a, temp has a high temperature? They're going to be sent back to their dorm room, and they, they will probably be tested. Everything they're talking about right now is shortening the offseason, you know, decreasing the density of student-athletes in, in, in contact with each other. Having student-athletes have little family unit, I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, you're, you might not have a defensive team meeting. Indoors is much more um, likely to spread COVID than outdoors. They might – look, no one told me this, and I, it just popped in my head. They may have team, team meetings outdoors. No more films or PowerPoints, or maybe they'll, uh, they're smart enough. They'll bring the film out outdoors. You and I should suggest that, Chris, the exposure they are trying to limit to, to every extent possible the amount of exposure, particularly indoors, the amount of contact, particularly indoors, student, student athletes are going to have with each other. You're going to see, you know, probably much less contact and much more walkthroughs and practices because as important as contact is in practice for a football coach what's more important of course is not having your 30 best players sick for your opening game against usc yeah i'm picturing team meetings that look like drive-in movies it's possible i mean look if you and i just thought about this i'm sure football coaches have so there's no reason for you to call tim corbin and say hey we just had this great idea <laughs> they've thought of this stuff I, I, I think you're, you might be right. You know, they might even get their own radio channel. Hey, you never know. <laughs> Sit at home and listen to this channel. And no, actually, they wouldn't because they'd be too paranoid that another coach would listen. They will find ways, a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of outdoor maybe meetings. But, you know, are, is the deep, are the linebackers uh, going to be in the linebacker coach's office crammed together? No, there's no chance of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And last thing... I mean, like you've said and like I've said, who knows? But any ideas on where this whole thing's headed, Mike? Yeah, I mean, if I had to guess, I mean, look, the fact that every college athletic department is having their student athletes sign these forms with questions like, you know, you will, or statements like, you will abide by, you know, the, the, share responsibility of the staff, coaches, and student-athletes. You've seen those statements, right? You will frequently – this is one of them from, from University of Tennessee. The athlete's responsibility includes adhering to the recommendations of the UT sports medicine staff and team physicians, social distancing, frequently washing hands, disinfecting athletic equipment, and use and wearing a face mask. The fact that these – Athletic departments are almost, you know, across the board going to have their student athletes have to sign these agreements. It reminds me of the movie Dazed and Confused, if you've ever seen it, where they're trying to get the kids to sign the, that paper that they won't drink alcohol and go to parties. 
what happened in Days and Confused, all the kids party 24-7. My best prediction is we will start the season if I had to predict, but I don't see how a high-density, high-contact sport like football or wrestling, et cetera, this is just my guess, absolutely a guess. I think it's unlikely that in the fall there's any sort of clusters I think we'll see teams dropping off, and I don't, I, my best guess is we're not going to see a finish this season. I could, I would lo- obviously, I would love to be wrong. There's nothing more, in, you know, as far as a hobby that I like to watch in the strategy of football. At the end of the day, I'll quote the CDC doctor I talked with, which was, you know, again, we don't know. It's novel, and we don't have data. So no amount of sophistication, et cetera, is, uh, about our past is going to predict our future. Your guess is as good as mine, and everyone out there's guess is just as good as ours. I was just waiting for you to drop in a prediction of, and Vanderbilt will be national champion by virtue of being the yeah. last program standing. If we go 2-0, yeah, <laughs> it, we might finish the season undefeated. And I, th- I have thought about that. What if everyone has to stop by game? You tell me, who, who are our first three games again? Uh, let's see. They go in September. They go Mercer. I can't remember if it's Missouri or Kansas State next and Colorado State, but those three are in there. That's that's your September okay, slate. So I, I'm pretty pessimistic. <laughs> I know your target on you, so I'll say this. I'm a little bit pessimistic about Vanderbilt football this coming year, um, even more so than I normally am. But there is a scenario where Vanderbilt goes 3-0 and in the, in the season ends, and 30 years from now we're still talking about how Vanderbilt was co-national champion. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And with that, Mike, I'll let you go. Uh, you've been a terrific guest. This has been a lot of fun. I will give you the floor with closing thoughts. Any of your work that you like to promote or your social media accounts, whatever you are comfortable with, the floor is yours. No, no, no promotion, no more final comments other than I, I thank you for having me. I thank your sponsors. Um, and then for all, all, all the listeners, you know, I hope – this was helpful. It's a lot of speculation, but hopefully, you know, interesting. Well, I'll be honest. One of the first things I'm going to do after I upload this is go back and listen to it again because there was so much fascinating stuff in there. Mike, thank you for joining us. Be safe and uh, hope business continues to go well and that um, we get a rosy outlook here in, in higher ed and sports because God knows the country needs that about now. Agree. We can all use the monster. He is Mike Spivey. I am Chris Lee, the host of the Vandy Sports Podcast. We appreciate you listening. We'll have more episodes coming your way later this week.